How could you progress from playing in a local brass band to starring alongside Kevin Costner in an Emmy award-winning TV show and then becoming one of the most in-demand audiobook narrators? We're about to find out. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. It's Ian Cleverdon here and welcome to my podcast series designed to help anyone who's looking for inspiration to develop their creative skills, whether professionally or as a hobbyist. For this series, our focus is on the creative arts. I am interviewing musicians, songwriters, authors and actors, but also speaking to some in the directing and strategic management fields of this wide ranging industry. All of my guests have been carefully chosen as each one of them has an interesting backstory from which we can all learn. If you're new to the series, please follow it on whichever streaming platform you use and go back to have a listen to the rich archive of over 30 interviews and compilations. Today, we start another two-part interview. My guest over the next two episodes is actor, audiobook narrator and musician Greg Patmore. Greg has an amazing backstory which we'll hear about today. However, I also wanted to find out more about the world of audiobook narration from him, and all that will be revealed in part two. Greg became an actor in his mid-40s, fulfilling a lifelong ambition when he trained at arts educational schools, and has enjoyed a varied career on stage, screen, and in the voiceover studio ever since. His credits include being a regular in audio dramas made by Audible UK, and has appeared as a voiceover artist in major movie and TV productions, including The Gunman and Ripper Street. Greg is best known on TV as Goodlias Hatfield in the Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning Hatfields and McCoys, Johnny Smith in Coronation Street, and the voice of Kurt Lobo in The Jackport Killer. This series is completely independent of sponsorship and ad-free, so if you'd like to sponsor the series, or just throw a few virtual pennies into the bowl to keep us going in coffee and biscuits, feel free to do so by donating online via the link in the show notes. Thank you in advance if you do. Let's get to the interview. Greg Patmore, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Hello, hello. Uh, My first question, Greg, something that I ask all of my guests is, let's go back to your teenage years. What was the first job you wanted to do and why? I remember I was about five or six years old and I told my paratrooper father that I wanted to be an actor. And he took one look at me and he went, you can't be a bloody actor. You're a skinny little thing. Charlton Eston, he's an actor. So um, (laughs) that dream was carefully, quite quickly shuffled aside. Um, But that was the first thing I can remember wanting to be. Don't know why, just like watching TV. Yeah. So what was the first job you did then? My first proper job um, that wasn't just like a paper round sort of thing uh, was when I left school uh, after my O-levels at 16 and I was an Asda trolley collector in the car park for the summer. And then the following summer I was, when I'd uh, started taking up A-levels, so I still had summer holidays. Um, I was a milkman working for a, a guy who was, he actually lived next door, Bill King, lovely bloke, and he gave me a summer job as a milkman, but it meant getting up ridiculously early. Hmm. <laughs> from, from that then, where did it progress? So, I mean, you're known particularly for the different variety of things that you do in the arts, you know, from the music side, acting, audiobook narration. Where did it all start for you getting into that that pathway? 
everything is related in a way. It all sort of one thing just led to another and some of it was kind of accidental. I was a bit of a troublemaker when I was a kid. I, w I, I was probably not very interested in school. I did okay and I managed to get into the... I passed my 11 plus and stuff, but I didn't enjoy school. I was a bit of a rebel. I enjoyed being disruptive rather than productive. And out of school, I never got caught for all the worst things I did, which is lucky because some of them were bad enough to, you know, by today's standards, some of the things I did would have got me in serious trouble, but I never got caught. And it wasn't until I was about 14 years old that my brother came home with a trumpet one day from school and I was quite fascinated by this thing. So one afternoon when everybody was out, I got this trumpet and his Tuna Day book one and I basically taught myself to play a tune on the trumpet that afternoon. And from that point on, we then went and joined a local brass band and I started playing in brass bands, Wigan and District Brass as it was. It doesn't exist anymore. It merged with Pemberton Old Band, which is a very successful band still. Yeah, I just fell in love with it. And from that point on, I stopped hanging around with the bad guys. I stopped causing trouble. I stopped being disruptive. And yeah, brass bands and music sort of changed me from being a budding criminal into being a, a committed musician, I suppose. So music was the saviour, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That gave me impetus because uh, I was leaving school at 16 uh, with no idea what I wanted to do. But once between 14 and 16, when I should have been revising for my O-levels, I was uh, practising my tenor horn and that's all I really cared about. But I knew that if I wanted to take it further, I had to do well enough at school because I basically blagged my way on to doing a music A-level, having never studied music in my life, other than being able to read the notes in front of me. So I might, that in, gave me enough incentive to do okay in my O-levels, which got me into A-levels. And the music teacher, a chap called Tom Billington, um, again, massive influence in, in my life at that time, he was prepared to take a chance on me and said, okay, but if you're struggling after a term, you'll have to you know, do something else because it it won't be good for you um, and luckily yeah there was no looking back I just took to it like a duck to water so that then meant I went to university to do music and kind of one thing led to another from there really. Whereabouts did you study? I managed to get into Goldsmiths College uh, which is part of the University of London. It was a bit of a, a disaster in a way university because I loved brass bands that's all I really cared about but I wanted to do music and at that time brass band instruments weren't really considered proper instruments and brass band musicians weren't considered proper musicians. So no universities in the country would offer a place to a brass band player on a brass band instrument. You could change to trumpet or trombone or French horn, but you couldn't go on brass band instruments. So from the word go, it kind of was a bit of a compromise for me. About 15 years later, in the early mid-90s, the Royal Northern College of Music instituted a sort of a much more outward positive approach and started taking on brass band musicians and if you look at their courses now they've got you know just absolutely equality in, in every respect with with every other kind of musician so to some extent i wish i'd been around 15 years later if you know what i mean because <laughs> it would have made a lot more focus to my uh, musical studies and so yeah it was it, it, it was an interesting time for me because i got what i wanted and it's weird when you realise that getting what you wanted sometimes isn't, isn't all it's cracked up to be. 
That's right. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because music colleges, conservatoires now offer a whole different range of styles of music as well. So you can study folk and jazz. Yeah. It's not just classical side of things. So uh, how things have changed, hopefully for the better, from the yeah. art side of things. The opportunities, I think, for young people now, everything is more accessible. And I think that's one of the one of the ways I've managed to do all the th- things I've done and is because I've found a way into it. The, you know, the, I've found myself able to do it because the internet allows you to get research. You can you can just get access to things. You can make networks. You can get in touch with people so much more easily now. So you can break into areas of the arts or of anything really that you're interested in. You've got access so much more easily. Absolutely. The number of young musicians that I've uh, worked with fairly recently as well who just say, oh, I, I just learnt, I just followed YouTube, uh, followed yeah. tutorials on YouTube. I still do if I ever need a, you know, recently my my main love at the moment outside of work is sailing. And, you know, I've learned so much from YouTube and it's just, how do I do this? Oh, I know, I'll look on YouTube and you can find almost anything anything you need to know there. So, Goldsmith College, university, music, we've obviously got acting and we've got audiobook narration that is a very big part of what you do. How did the journey progress from the the music studies? Again, it's this, because I'm a working class lad and had no money or anything, um, I've always had the battle between what I've wanted to do and what I've had to do between, you know, in order to make a living. So when I finished uh, university, the first job I got out of university with my music degree, I was trying to fund my way through a, a master's degree in composition immediately after my bachelor of music degree. Just to rewind momentarily, I discovered acting shortly after I discovered music, but because I'd become so committed to music and was so heavily involved in brass bands and so forth, it dominated. And I didn't really explore acting other than doing a couple of school plays and being a member of Wigan Youth Theatre or Wigan Young People's Theatre, which was a brilliant experience. That's another story. But I'd come to the point that um, there I was after university with my nice shiny music degree, and I got a job working for an organisation called Greenwich Young People's Theatre, which was term time only, uh, basically limited contract. I suppose by, by uh, today it would be a zero hours contract and you just get paid for what you, you know, for the hours that you worked. So it wasn't really a very secure job and it didn't pay a huge amount. And I was trying to live in London at the time. And then a combination of things happened. Those of us who are from the north know that uh, the impact of the miners' strikes in the mid-1980s um, my dad by that time had his own business and most of his customers, or a lot of them were miners, Wigan was a big mining area. So when the miners' strikes came along, there was a, a, a period of massive economic downturn and within a relatively short time, my mum, who was a health visitor for the NHS, was the only person in the family who had a proper job. So she was trying to support my dad, my brother. I was kind of getting by in London, but not not really. Then my brother and his girlfriend at the time decided they were going to get married and they were going to have a baby. And suddenly I couldn't really justify to myself, you know, doing the artist in a garret thing while my mum was the only person in the family supporting everybody. So I literally, with very little thought, picked up a copy of The Guardian and um, basically applied for a, a job selling advertising space for Reed Business Publishing and... I got the job and within a week I was 
wearing a suit and uh, going to you know sit there and ringing up advertising agencies in London and trying to convince them to take out full page advertising in color in computer weekly and that's what I did for the next few years in various different formations so all of that was ordered in order to survive make a living that led eventually I ended up in commercial radio uh, because there was a hankering to get back into music and arts, and I thought, well, I've still got to make a living. Commercial radio had a massive kind of diaspora, really, in this country in the early 90s. One of the things that launched was Jazz FM, and uh, after they'd been on air for about a year, they I heard I was a listener, and I heard them advertising for people to go and work for the station, primarily to, again, sell advertising space, which is what I was doing, basically. So I went to work for Jazz FM, and from that, I started getting involved in setting up venues and co-promoting music with the radio station and got closer and closer. I met people like Ronnie Scott and, you know, was sort of on stage with some really quite big names, not performing, just introducing them or something like that. From that, I started making radio commercials and I didn't have to make them, but I found, oh, I rather like this. So that was my first foray into using music for commercial purposes of my own from time to time, you know, doing voiceovers, playing multiple characters sometimes to make these usually quite amusing radio commercials. And that sort of, I think that planted a seed that's always been there. So the lead into uh, into radio and doing what you're there was through the advertising. Yes. That you did. Yeah. Again, a lot of it came out as a result of necessity in, in current times it's not too dissimilar to the sort of late 80s early 90s in some respects you know there was the wars in Iraq and all of that sort of thing going on a lot of unrest a lot of political unrest a lot of economic struggles there were situations in this country where people were handing their keys back because the mortgage rates were shooting up to 15 percent overnight and you know, people couldn't afford their, to pay their mortgages anymore, so they were handing their keys back. There were people by the thousands being made redundant in service industries that didn't normally make people redundant. You know, so there was a lot going on, and you made a lot of decisions I made were because of those times I needed a job, and it was like, that's what I can do. I can sell stuff, and that's how I managed to kind of pay the way. They weren't, it wasn't choices so much as responding to circumstances a lot of the time. One of the things I've discovered looking back on that is there is always something that is kind of pointing you. I think it's really important to listen to your inner voice or whatever it may be. The thing that, you know, somewhere inside you, even when you're dealing with adversity or going through times where you can't choose what you do, you've just got to survive. I once went and took out a pension policy. I thought I ought to start providing for my future quite early on. And in those days, the big selling companies, they were full of all the spiel. And the company, the guy that I, he sat and took me through this questionnaire because it was all about finding out your dreams and your life and all of this so that they could, you know, sell you the perfect pension or whatever. And many years later, I actually got all the paperwork back for this. And I'd completely forgotten that this interview, the guy had asked me to imagine my perfect world in sort of 15, 20 years time, what would it be? And I'd written down that I'd be sitting, looking out of the window over the countryside in my own recording studio, making my own music. And I'd totally forgotten that I'd written this until I, I came across it again sort of 15 years later. So even in the midst of all that stuff that was about just making choices... 
there was something going on that was pushing me towards making you know choices that got me nearer to if I could just get that bit nearer to music and musicians and performance and arts, then that was you know that was the natural thing for me to do. It's amazing, isn't it, that just those little things, those sparks that we can hang on to, um, and but it's finding the right pathway. How did that develop from doing the commercials on radio? Because um, obviously you've done a lot of acting. You've done mm. TV work, massive amount of TV work in America, over here, Vera, Coronation Street and the like. So how did you get into that world? What happened was after Jazz FM, or while I was at Jazz FM, um, this, we won the licence to launch Jazz FM Northwest in the early 1990s. And we therefore began to plan, the station began to plan for that. Now, I wasn't a manager of any significant level. I was very much in the middle. But nonetheless, I threw my hat in the ring because I thought this is my opportunity to leave London and go back to the northwest and, you know, kind of get a foothold back in the life that I'd never really wanted to let go of, the brass bands and everything else. So I threw my hat in the ring to be part of the launch team and that was it. So it was me and a chap called Peter Salt, who was originally a director of Red Rose Radio, which was part of the group that at that time owned Jazz FM. And we basically were the launch team. We, when I had to go and find the offices, which I did, you know, where we were going to base ourselves. And we based ourselves in the very, very early stages of what's happening in Media City. I think it was called Quadrant House, and it's on the opposite side of the water in Salford from Media City. Once we had got the radio station going, I started doing what I was doing in London, but now I was you know, making connections on the music scene in Manchester and in Liverpool and much closer to home. I started playing in a brass band again. wasn't intentional. My brother turned up, opened, I opened the door, he stuck his cornet in my... I wasn't even a cornet player, but he stuck his cornet out. We need a cornet player for Thurius. It's you. <laughs> And off he went, and I, that was it. I was in the band again, so I had to get the lip in and on the cornet and go and. And before you knew it, I was back in brass bands, back conducting bands. I used to conduct Trinity Girls Band. We, you know, took them to competitions. We won some prizes. Conducted Wigan Choral Society after another chap who was quite influential, um, gentleman called Ronnie Kay, who was very well known in this area and father to a very good friend of mine who was she was like my accompanist of choice when I was playing solos with on the horn she would always play the piano for me when we were at school and when I came back up unfortunately her dad died and he'd run this choir forever and she asked me to take it on so I did that for a while and we did some lovely concerts and that got me back into performing but along the way I also ran into another old school friend um, an ex-teacher he was heavily involved in Wigan Little Theatre and suddenly said to me one day when I bumped into him, you should get back into acting. And I went, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm too busy. I can't be doing that. So he said, well, my wife's directing a play at Wigan Little Theatre and she hasn't found anybody for this part. Why don't you read for it? And I, oh, no, no, no. But anyway, of course I did. And she, you know, Tracy gave me the part. And uh, <laughs> next thing you know, I was in Wigan Little Theatre and... It just changed my life because I went from being heavily committed to everything that I was doing in the community, teaching, everything. I suddenly realized it was that this was the thing that is what I wanted to do. Nothing to do with circumstances or trying to make a living or anything of that ilk. It was just my word, did it press the buttons? Did it really make me feel a way I'd never really felt in anything at all, even music, which I loved? And, you know, I played at a high level, but it didn't quite do it the same so yeah with that was 2004 when i was in the first play 
that that I'd done. And by 2008, I'm more or less, over the next couple of years, I gave up uh, everything to do with brass bands. I gave up the teaching of the the kids. I gave up any extraneous, anything that wasn't acting related. I did my last play in 2008 and directed one in 2000 and early 2009. And by that time, I decided I was going to try and become a professional actor. And I managed to find get myself an agent. And from that point on, everything else had to go. Just leading up to that point then, were you still working at the radio station? No, by then, my wife and I had set up a business which kind of took our commercial skills. She'd worked in PR agencies and everything. And I'd worked originally through Reed Business Publishing. I'd worked with ad agencies. I'd worked in commercial radio and all of those areas. So we set up a, a very early hub business, as they were call- people were calling it at the time, uh, where you provided services without necessarily having to employ every single individual in that process. So you'd, you would effectively manage a process, but bring in freelancers as necessary to complete the various skills. So it could be design, could be event management, it could be PR, it could be advertising, it could be radio commercials. And so we had this business that was called Bridge Creative that uh, my wife ran and I was heavily involved in developing the business contacts, doing the selling. And so that was how I was making a living. To be honest, I have no idea how I found the time to do it all because I wouldn't be able to do it now. It would exhaust me. Did it give you the flexibility, though, perhaps from a self-employed perspective, to be able to fit things in? We worked in that business, as many people do when they're self-employed, harder, longer hours than I ever worked in any other job employed by anybody ever. So I didn't really get much flexibility. We never took holidays unless we took them at Christmas and New Year. We couldn't go away. We always had to be available. The only time that was my own was evenings. But even then, we'd quite often be working and I'd be jumping in the car with my instrument to go to band practice straight out of the office. You know, you didn't even go home because uh, home was just the other side of the courtyard. We, you know, we had a, a, we had a separate building for the office, but it was, you know, uh, it was still right there on your doorstep. When you've got lots of clients in that kind of industry, you're at their beck and call. So you're only as flexible as they let you be. Yeah. So let's jump into the uh, the full-time acting role then. So mm-hmm. 2009, um, you, you decided to go full-time. And I know that you ended up on Hatfield and McCoy's um, the, yeah. the US series. How did you get that job? In a nutshell, because nobody told me I couldn't. So, I mean, it literally was, I decided, and by this time, of course, you've got the internet now, you know, by 2008, 2009, you've got internet, you've got social media, you've got ways of connecting and contacting people that you never would have never had in, in my day. So you had, I I had access to so much information. In 2008, after I did my last play, I managed to get myself cast in a play that was, everybody else in the cast had been on either on one of the major soap operas and it was a cast of eight people i was the only person who wasn't professional um but they'd been struggling to find somebody for this one role i thought i'm i'm actually doing okay here you know i'm i'm working alongside proper actors and nobody seems to think that i'm not one so let's have a go you know so i i started asking around who who what agents who who's got what agents and um yeah so basically i just started blagging my way into it i managed to get myself a decent agent i think yeah early 2009 i, I managed to get a, a an outdoor theater tour play in a, a, a tier of a production of romeo and juliet 
I then managed to get into a professional panto and then immediately into another show that was another months long tour all around the UK, a tour of Caucasian Chalk Circle for a company called Black Eyed Theatre, who's doing very, very good work. Um, so I managed to get some good work for good theatre companies. And then I thought, well, I really ought to earn my crust. I, I, I probably ought to get some credentials. So I started thinking about doing some training just to try and expand my skill set. But at the same time, my agent suddenly called me up to say, could you go down to London and uh, meet with this casting director? And the part is for some sort of American show. He didn't know too much about it. He said, I'm not really sure too much, but um, you need to be able to do a West Virginian accent and ideally play the violin or the mandolin. And I said, well, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can pull off the accent, but I don't play the violin or the mandolin, but don't worry, leave it with me. And I went the next day and I bought a cheap mandolin from a music store and I sat down and worked out a tune on it. And um, I went down to London, met with the casting agent, and after we'd done the meeting and I'd had to do my whole here we are talk like this whole time, what's going on there, boy? Then did all that to camera, and she said, oh, that's excellent, she said, that's really good. Um, do you mind just playing the mandolin? So I thought, okay, so I got the mandolin up and rattled off this little tune that I'd been making up over the weekend. And she said, that's excellent, really, really excellent. She said, how long have you been playing the mandolin? And I said, oh, 35, 36 hours, <laughs> which I, I guess was the moment that clicked it because that was all on video. And anyway, the next thing I know, the uh, the director had been in touch with her to say, yeah, we'll have him. So I didn't even have to do another audition. And I was lucky enough to get into the show. Yeah. And how long was the, the, did the show last for? Well, I was in Romania for three months because it was filmed in Romania, mainly a lot of it, mainly because the Carpathian Mountains are apparently more like the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, whatever the mountains are there. Um, but it, you don't get the vapour trails because there's not jets going over every two minutes. You haven't got street lights and, you know, lines and big highways. Um, so we were there for three months. The show was three feature-length episodes, Hatfields and McCoys. I was in all three episodes. And I spent a lot of time because my brother was Kevin Costner on one side and um, Powers Booth was my other brother and Bill Paxton was the bad guy. He wasn't a bad guy. He was just the guy we didn't like. Tom Berenger was the uncle. So, I mean, these were guys, these were names that I'd been just unbelievable for me. I'd, I'm sitting here having a beer with Tom Berenger. I mean, that guy was, when I was young, absolutely one of the top actors in the world and, you know, just unbelievable and such a lovely, lovely guy. And I know everybody says that, but he, he absolutely is. So, yeah, that just kind of came a little bit unexpectedly because that was 2011, so I'd only really decided to go professional in 2008, and I just managed to get myself in the right place at the right time. Fantastic. Something that you're really known for and have won awards for is audiobook narration, and that, which in a form, I'm sure, is a form of acting because of what you do, and having heard some of your work, um, one thing that stands out to me is the characters that you really bring across. What approach do you take in preparing for, for doing a... a audiobook work the thing with with audiobooks is again for me it came as a bit of a necessity because my acting was kind of motoring along quite nicely i never expected to be famous or anything but 
you know, just to be working was an absolute privilege. And there are many, many actors who go entire careers without ever getting to be lucky enough to go into a Hollywood show that, you know, it won five Emmys and all the rest of it to actually reward my wife for all the patience that she showed me through those years when, you know, go to Hollywood, do a red carpet reception and all of that sort of stuff with the paparazzi all clicking away. Uh, it was nice to do it that one time. and But for all of that, work wasn't constant. Uh, you quite often hear really well-known actors, much, much more respected and much better than I ever um, was, who still say they never know where the next job's coming from. And in 2014, I was hired by somebody I'd worked with doing a, a drama, audio drama, which I hadn't really considered as being directly related to audiobooks at the time. Don't know why. Uh, it just hadn't occurred to me. But I was hired to go and do an audiobook. And it was quite a specific challenge because the book was written in a unique way. It had been written a line at a time on Twitter. And it was very modernistic, quite surreal. It was this kind of... The, the, the central character was a, a werewolf who was a detective. And all the characters were just strange, strange, strange creations. And the author was absolutely adamant that nobody could just read this book out. It had to be performed. And so I got asked to go and do it because I'd worked with um, people who'd been involved with the develop development of this book before. And I was kind of known for doing lots of different outlandish characters or you know, being able to jump from one to the other without any problem. So I did this audio book. It, was, it wasn't terribly long. It was only about four hours. Uh, it was called The Jackport Killer. I think it's still available on Audible, just a little plug. But um, the characters in it were quite you know they were all over the place and so I did that and I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed doing that but it placed a little seed in the back of my mind so once when I got to periods where I was a little bit between roles as we, I'm, I'm just resting darling um while I was resting darling I thought I ought to just what well, maybe I should explore this audiobook thing a bit more so I started researching it and discovered I thought, well, I've got the acting skills and I've had the vocal training and I've worked in studios enough to know which end goes where and I've used audio software when I was composing music and I thought, I've got all the requisite skills already there. What's to stop me? And so I, I auditioned for some books, got them, uh, and next thing you know, I'm supplementing my income by audiobooks and then after a while I was actually working more or less continuously on audiobooks it even got to the point where I had to turn down the uh, acting work because I'd already committed to doing audiobooks and just at the point when I was trying to decide what the next stage was and whether or not to take it more seriously or back off and focus more on acting I got nominated for a, an award in the Sovas Voice Arts Awards which I didn't win but the nomination was amazing and then a year later, I was nominated for an Audi, and this time we won it. And I went over to New York, and I was absolutely absolutely certain that there was no way I was going to win it because it was Penguin Random House, Harper, Con you know, everybody, all the just all the big boys were there. And mine was a, an audio book that I'd produced and edited and pr done it all myself. I, I hadn't written it, obviously, but I thought, no, I'm happy enough to be nominated just to be at the table with these guys. That's going to help my career. Anyway, we went ahead and won the Audi, which was probably 
I would say pretty much the most exciting single moment of my performing life to actually get the prize. So that meant I had to take it really seriously. Um, I thought, well, I've really got to look into this now. So I was planning to go back to America. I'd spent a fortune on uh, going to various conferences and conventions in New York, hotels, flights, everything that it was going to take. I'd started networking with some of the big players out there and arranging meetings and so forth. And and then COVID came along and everything just died. That was it. You couldn't go, you couldn't fly, you couldn't do anything. Desperately sitting there looking at thousands of pounds just disappearing up the chimney. Luckily, eventually got most of it back. But it... Uh, it sort of slowed things down a little bit. But what then did become very apparent was there was no acting work to be had. Um, my wife by this time had also started doing audiobooks. I'd trained her in how to use the software. She's got a fantastic voice. When we were first dating, I used to ring her up just to hear her voice. And that's not just me saying that. It literally was. I'd just ring her up. And she'd say, why are you ringing me? I'm really busy. I'd say, it's okay. It's okay. okay. You, you can tell me to go. I don't care. Just talk for like two seconds. Um... And actually, it's proved right because she's doing, at the moment, I'd say she's probably doing better than me in audiobooks in terms of work coming to her and people wanting wanting her to do their books. So it was a good call. And I trained her how to use all the software and everything so she can do it, produce, self-produce as well if she needs to. But of course, we had no income if we didn't work. So the audiobooks saved our lives because I had a home studio and suddenly it just meant that through that whole period where people, many people were struggling, we were actually doing okay and we wouldn't have been able to without it. So, you know, audiobooks, it was definitely a good thing for me to, to get into. I'm sure you'll agree that Greg's career progression is a great example of, to quote him, nobody told me I couldn't do it. It's a real inspiration for those of us who hit a fork in the road and wonder which way to go. I feel sure that most, if not all of you, would have had those decisions to make at some stage. I was also fascinated how the transition from acting to audiobook narration transpired. When you think about it, audiobook narration is a form of acting. It's very similar to radio plays. I was really keen to hear about the process of preparing for and producing an audiobook. The good news is that you can hear about that in detail in the next episode. If you're a fan of audiobooks in particular, you will not want to miss it. Thanks to Greg for his time and great advice. Make sure you follow the series if you don't already, so you're notified when part two comes out. You can also sample lots of Greg's work at his website, voiceofgreg.com, and his acting showreel, links to which can be found in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow the series wherever you get your pods, and do review the back catalogue if you're new to the series. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. I'd love to know what you think of these episodes, so please do drop me a note. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode, bye for now. Mm-hmm.